God's word. Go up against the land of Marathim and against the inhabitants of Picad. Kill and devote them to destruction, declares the Lord, and do all that I have commanded you. The noise of battle is in the land and great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth is cut down and broken. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. I set a snare for you and you were taken, O Babylon, and you did not know it. You were found and caught because you opposed the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and brought out the weapons of his wrath. For the Lord God of hosts has a work to do in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from every quarter. Open her granaries. Pile her up like heaps of grain and devote her to destruction. Let nothing be left of her. Kill all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them for their day has come, the time of their punishment. A voice. They flee and escape from the land of Babylon to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God. Vengeance for his temple. Summon archers against Babylon, all those who bend the bow and camp around her. Let no one escape. Repay her according to her deeds. Do to her according to all that she has done. For she has proudly defied the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Therefore her young men shall fall in her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed on that day, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up. And I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all that is around him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah with them. All who took them captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. A sword against the Chaldeans, declares the Lord, and against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against her officials and her wise men. A sword against the diviners, that they may become fools. A sword against her warriors, that they may be destroyed. A sword against her horses, and against her chariots, and against all the foreign troops in her midst, that they may become women. A sword against all her treasures, that they may be plundered. A drought against her waters, that they may be dried up. For it is a land of images, and they are mad over idols. Therefore, wild beasts shall dwell with hyenas in Babylon, and ostriches shall dwell in her. She shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring cities, declares the Lord, so no man shall dwell there, and no son of man shall sojourn in her. Behold, a people comes from the north, a mighty nation, and many kings are stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. They lay hold of bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring of the sea. They ride on horses, arrayed as a man for battle. Against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon heard the report of them, and his hands fell limp, helpless. Anguish seized him, pain as of a woman in labor. Behold, like a lion coming up from the thicket of the Jordan against the perennial pasture, I will suddenly make them run away from her, and I will appoint over her whomever I choose. For who is like me? Who will summon me? What shepherd can stand 
before me. Therefore, hear the plan that the Lord has made against Babylon and the purposes that he has formed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the little ones of their flock shall be dragged away. Surely their fold shall be appalled at their fate. At the sound of the capture of Babylon, the earth shall tremble, and her cry shall be heard among the nations. Read this far in God's word. I want to start by giving you an image that will carry us through our study of these verses. The image is of a teeter-totter. Take yourself back to elementary school on the playground. I'll describe it for you if you don't know what I mean. It's a long board with one child on one end and another child on the other end with a balancing point in the middle. And the game is between two students. They go up and down taking turns. When one child goes down, the other automatically goes up. When that child comes back down, the other one automatically goes up. That's how the passage is set up. It'll help you as we think through the passage together. When God's enemy Babylon goes down, God's own people go up. It's a double reversal, meaning that God has reversed his plan towards Babylon, no longer a tool for him to go and destroy nation after nation. Now he's destroying them. But God has also reversed his plan for Israel, no longer sent off into exile because of her sin, but now forgiven and pardoned, as we studied last time, and being brought home. So it's a double reversal, and the teeter-totter image fits and helps us. Think of the child who thought he's on top of the world, suddenly finding himself at the level of the ground. And think of the child who was at the level of the ground, suddenly celebrating an exhilarating takeoff high into the air. It's a beautiful image that will help us to see the two things God is doing at the very same time. So our main point is this. The Lord opened his armory in order to exact vengeance against Babylon for destroying his people. And remember, vengeance for Babylon results in restoration for the exiles of God's own people. So we'll unpack it in three significant images. First, God the warrior who opened his armory of wrath and vengeance, verses 21 to 32. Secondly, God the strong redeemer who freed his people with a sword from the enemy, who wouldn't let God's people go, just like Egypt all over again, verses 33 to 39. And the third image is God the destroyer, who will demolish severely, like Sodom and Gomorrah, all over again, verses 40 to 46. So let's start now with God the warrior, and we're picking up our story with verse 21, where an unnamed army from the north was authorized to proceed and attack against Babylon. It's emphasized that the command comes from none other than God himself. If you look at the important phrase in verse 21, all that I have commanded you, he says to this coalition of forces led by the Persians. God is commanding them. Let that be clear. The issue comes from God, the command to take Babylon down. And beginning in verse 22, the battle against Babylon is now shown to us vividly. We're asked to imagine, first, the noise of battle, someone winning against Babylon. Well, nobody knows what that sounds like because nobody's ever winning against Babylon. Babylon was always winning. Verse 23, there's a sarcastic taunt as if God was saying, I can hardly believe what's happening to the mighty Babylon. Next, what would would it sound like we are asked to imagine if the hammer, uh, the one nation that's known as going around pounding nations, the hammer, were itself to be broken? What would that sound like? What would that look like? We're asked to imagine... 
the destruction and what we would see if a video camera were suddenly and slowly scanning Babylon for us. That's what we're asked to consider in verse 23. Babylon was taken, as we were told back in verse 2. Babylon is demolished, as we're getting the description in the picture. If Babylon were to ask why, then verse 24 would give the answer to Babylon. Because you opposed the Lord. Beginning in verse 25, we see the Lord himself presented as a warrior. He opens his armory. Whatever in all the world is in the armory of the Lord God of Israel. We begin to get a picture of it here in our chapter. To bring out weapons of his wrath against the Babylonians, also called the Chaldeans, the mention of grain and bulls in verses 26 and 27 show this destruction is something of a spiritual sacrifice, having a spiritual meaning for it, that God's temple had been attacked. So God must now conduct, in response, religious warfare or a holy war. So in verse 28, the scene shifted focus as if to say, meanwhile, you can handle this because when you watch TV, they'll show you what's happening over here, and all of a sudden you're looking over here, and then all of a sudden you're back over here. The hard part is you don't know where the signals are as you're reading it, in words. So I'm telling you, verse 28 is now a different scene. We're shifting scenes. Meanwhile, the exiles go to flee from Babylon and finally escape after their 70 years in prison there. If Israel were to ask why, then verse 28 answers Israel in order to declare in Zion the vengeance of the Lord, our God. Vengeance for his temple. Thus, the title of the sermon is Vengeance for His Temple. I think this is emphasized here in our passage. The exiles are suddenly back in Jerusalem, standing at the Temple Mount, maybe for the first time seeing the destruction that Babylon conducted there 70 years earlier. And they're grieving. And they're giving voice or talking about God's vengeance. And they're talking about how God's vengeance, in reply to the disdain that they obviously showed for his temple building, the place where God had made his own presence known in the world and known in Jerusalem at his temple, the disdain that the Babylons had towards that temple needed to be replied to. So an attack on God's temple was viewed by them and viewed by God as an attack on God himself. That's how we must view it, and we'll remember that and carry it forward to our application. Moving ahead to verse 29, God, the attacker, activated archers using bows and arrows. And the case was made now that the punishment fit the crime. It was repayment, quote, according to her deeds, verse 29, quote, according to all she has done, verse 29. And, and what was that? What was that that Babylon had done? She has, quote, proudly defied the Lord, the God, the Holy One of Israel. Pride and rebellion against the Lord. By the way, in verse 21, those two place names were translated loosely to pride and destruction, rebellion and punishment. Verse 31 now confirmed this in a poem, their pride, behold, I'm against you, O proud one, says God to Babylon. And again in verse 32, the proud one shall stumble and fall. Remember our teeter-totter? The proud one stumbles and falls, so what happens to the person on the other end? We get to our second point. God, the strong redeemer, freed his people with a sword from an enemy who wouldn't let his people go like Egypt all over again. So verse 33, the Lord emphasized the low condition of his people and in need of rescue. 
It wasn't that they were constant slaves in chains, as we often think in Egypt. Not quite that way in Babylon. But they're also not free to leave, shall we put it that way? And not free to worship and serve God as God called them to do. You know that we have a great example in Daniel and his three friends of exactly the conditions there. It's reported to us over in the book of Daniel. That's why we love to study that. The exiles were closely watched, we learn. The exiles were not allowed to even pray to the Lord God of Israel, but instead are commanded to worship the the king of Babylon. These are the conditions happening over in Babylon. And God sees it here in verse 33. He understands and he lets us know, he acknowledges the condition that these captors in Babylon sounded just like the previously famous captors in Egypt back when God kept saying that classic phrase that probably your neighbors even know. If they know anything from the Bible, this is one of the five or ten things they know through Moses, let my people go. That's the classic thing being referenced here. And in verse 33, listen to this. All who took them captive, now we're on Babylon, all who took them captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. That reference is supposed to strike us that way. Jeremiah is very clever, followed by, um, carried along by God the Holy Spirit for us to see. It's the same thing all over again. And what will this God do for his people? In verse 34, the one who acted is their redeemer. The one who holds his people fast. You might think you're holding them fast in captivity, but God is holding them fast in covenant. That's the word here, redeemer. He's strong, by the way. He's the Lord of hosts is his name, we are told in verse 34. Remember our teeter-totter and see it rise for God's people, the God who at the start of the exile was the prosecuting attorney against his sinful people, listing out their sins and saying, because of this, I'm sending you to exile. Now, at the end of the exile, has become the opposite. He's their advocate, their defense attorney in court, who now in verse 34 even is found to plead their cause. See our teeter-totter? This time not just applied to Israel, but to all nations. All nations are on the other side of our teeter-totter. We're told that the Lord is pleading the legal case so that, quote, he can give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. The scope is there for anyone who would call on this God to be their God, not just his historic people, Israel. How will God plead this legal case? Oh, I love to tell you about this. How will God plead the legal case? With a sword. Verses 35 to 39, the Lord brandished a sword. It begins in verse 35, a sword against the Chaldeans declared the Lord and against the inhabitants of Babylon. What follows, we could call an ode to the sword. The phrase keeps getting repeated, a sword against, a sword against, showing God's power. But the sword has no verbs. It has no context. It has no nation attached to it. It has no army attached to it. It has no human weapon. It's not a human sword. This, brothers and sisters, is a very supernatural sword. It's more than poetic. Something went down in history. In verses 35, 36, and 37, God called for this sword to attack those in charge of the previously unassailable empire, her officials, her wise men, the diviners, her warriors, and even the foreign troops in her midst. Then, in verses 37 and 38, the sword of the Lord, if we could call it that, 
will attack the army's horses, chariots, the nation's financial treasures, the water supply, all for a valid spiritual reason, we're told in verse 38. It is a land of images, and they are mad over idols. In other words, they don't worship the correct God. And so, the result in verse 39 is intense. The God inverted the mighty, wealthy Babylon, famous for its hanging gardens, for example, into a wilderness. Babylon became a haunt only for despicable scavenger animals such as hyenas, wild beasts, and ostriches. The sword against Babylon is meant to remind us of something. It's meant to remind us of what God did of the previous enemy who wouldn't let his people go. How did God respond to Egypt? He just made stuff up. He made plague after plague. It's a supernatural plague. It's a supernatural sword. He has anything to choose from. He could invent stuff you've never seen before in his armory, or he could use stuff from earth like the book of Joel, use locusts. Anything that God could use. The issue is that you're against God, Babylon. It's a land of images, and so he will turn them into a place of wilderness. Both the plagues in Egypt and the sword in Babylon were attacks by the Lord of Israel that were large in scale, supernatural in type, unstoppable, and applied to the enemy, while at the very same moment protecting God's own oppressed people who were nearby. We're meant to see the comparison between the plagues and this sword, the previous Plagues against Egypt, now the supernatural sword against Babylon, were applied until God's people were let go. That's the similarity. We move to our third point, God the destroyer. Once God's people are freed, once God's people are safe and let go, now what will happen? We turn to verse 40. Following on the closing statements after verse 39, that the Babylon will only have desert creatures living in it, such as hyenas, we read, she shall never again have people, nor be inhabited for all generations. Now let me ask you, Bible scholars, Bible students, what does that remind you of? <laughs> We're actually told, right, in verse 40, Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah are referenced here. In verse 40, God named another place famous for coming under God's judgment and being rendered not just a wilderness. We could do that but particularly desolate wilderness, and permanently so. Permanently so. That's the reference for Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapters 18 and 19, I'll quickly review, tell us that Sodom and Gomorrah were prosperous cities whose sin had become very grave before the Lord God. And then Abraham famously interceded for Sodom, But after that incredible passage, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire. And meanwhile, God made out of Abraham a great nation. You see the teeter-totter even there. It's the third time in the book of Jeremiah that the comparison is made to Sodom, plus four times in Isaiah, six times in Ezekiel, two times in other prophets, two times in Deuteronomy, and nine times in the New Testament. Consider this statement from Jesus in Matthew 11.24, speaking to cities in which Jesus had preached, but still did not repent, and I quote, I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Matthew 11.24. Verses 41 to 46 now present a vision of an event Future, as if it's unfolding before Jeremiah's eyes now. Verse 41, a people from the north who used to be 
Babylon. Now it's somebody else from the north attacking Babylon. Some coalition of armies we learned from history was led by the king of Persia attacking Babylon from the north, even though they had been east. Verse 42, there are cavalry with many horses, so many it sounded like the sea, which is a symbol in ancient literature for chaos. Something that's against God is the sea. Verse 43, the king of Babylon became helpless with fear. Remember that fun story in book of Daniel chapter 5? We have this confirmed. I'll quickly tell you the story here. The reaction of the king of Babylon on the eve of the Persian attack of the city. Remember how the king saw the writing on the wall? Many, many, tackle, parson, and he got kind of scared pretty fast. The king fell into extreme distress and his stomach was tied in knots until the Lord untied the knots. He lost control of the kingdom the same moment he lost control of his basic bodily functions right in the middle of his banquet. Remember what he'd been drinking out of? Goblets from where? From the temple of the Lord God. Vengeance for his temple, we see in Daniel and in Jeremiah. Vengeance for his temple because goblets had been taken from Jerusalem in the attacks and deportations and they were sitting for weeks drinking out of God's holy goblets, thumbing their nose at the Almighty God. Again, the emphasis is God is taking action and vengeance for his temple. Verses 44 through 49 complete our, our study. I'm sorry, 44 through 46. Repeat of the image of, of a lion, which we saw in chapter 49, verses 19 to 21. A lion coming up out of the thickets of the Jordan River. In 49, it was attacking Edom. Of course, here it's attacking Babylon. God is the wild lion who would chase the inhabitants of civilization out of their cities in a flash. There is no leader. There is no shepherd who could then be asked to go in to chase God back out of their cities so they could re-inhabit them. They are just out of their cities, and they can't resist the Lord. When, back when Edom fell, the sound of their cry was to be heard all the way to the Red Sea. But when Babylon fell, we read at the end of our chapter, verse 46, the very end if you look at it, her cry shall be heard among the nations. God is saying something well beyond Babylon. God has shot across the bow to every nation, including our own. And what God is saying here is clear. All the nations of the earth must take note and get the message that since such a great nation as Babylon was not able to defend itself against the lion of the tribe of Judah, Neither will any other nation be able to stand up to the Lord's judgment and especially for his vengeance, for his temple, namely his people. Our teeter-totter was prophetic of the cross. The sword, that mysterious spiritual sword of God's judgment fell on Jesus. That's the only way we're safe. The teeter-totter, Jesus on one end, us on the other, he goes down and that's how we live. He dies that we can live. The one place we see most clearly the simultaneous punishment of evil and salvation of God's people at the same time is the cross of Jesus Christ. Just as God redeemed his people out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, the picture of slavery to their sins, so also God redeemed his people from oppression in Babylon caused by their own sins and both actions, the exodus and the exile, homecoming, 
are pointers to the redemption in Christ. Listen to Paul describe it in Colossians 1.13. Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The downfall of evil is part of God's plan for this whole world and especially for the restoration of his church. So I have two parting conclusions then as we apply this to ourselves. One, be thankful for Christ's control of the teeter-totter. means be thankful for Christ's two roles, one as judge of the nations and second as head over his church, the temple of God. Remember how in verse 7, previous study, chapter 50 here, verse 7, the attacking army was told by the Lord to uh, do all that I have commanded you. I'm sorry, it's verse 21. Here it is, verse 21. Do all that I've commanded you in attacking Babylon. You know, this coalition is supposed to do all that I've commanded you. Well, what does the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of his church, do with all the authority given to him in heaven and on earth? He commands us to go make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And then he says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. It's the same phrase. The coalition with the Persian army at the head is supposed to do all that God commanded them against Babylon. And we, as now the temple of God, are supposed to do all that God has commanded us to reach the nations for Christ. The greatest commandment given to the church is given by the same Lord who commanded the overthrow and judgment of our enemies. So whenever we read and think about the judgment of God, we can be thankful that Christ is over the teeter-totter, that Christ is over his church, that Christ is over the judgment of all nations. He's commanded us what to believe, how to live. He's commanded victory over sin, the devil, and the world. He's commanded that his gospel have victory as it goes to all nations through our missionaries. And those who resist and those who oppose the Lord Jesus Christ will always lose and always pay. We show our thankfulness by obedience to all that he's commanded us, being thankful for his vengeance for his temple, which is his passion for us. The application to us is to be thankful that our Redeemer is strong, stronger than all the nations over which he has authority in heaven and on earth. We're so thankful. The second and last application is be at rest and the Lord our Redeemer, because of his reversal. We had it in verse 34. Our Lord God is giving rest to the earth, unrest to his enemies. We're on the good end of the teeter-totter. We're down right now, you could say, but we're going up into heaven. Or you could say that we're in Christ, and we're already up as in terms of we have faith. But God's plan for his judgment is clear. Against sin at the cross, the same place we see his plans for salvation. Acts 4, 27. Truly in this city, Jerusalem, by the way, we were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts 4, 27 to 28. What was God's plan predestined to take place when Jesus was crucified at Jerusalem? It was dual. God's plan had two outcomes. Down with God's enemies, up with his people. Death to all of God's enemies, salvation and eternal life to God's people. It's just that clear. Vengeance for his temple, for his people, being filled with sin. And that sin then transferred to Jesus and he was punished as if he were an enemy of God. All the wrath of God meted out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, salvation for his people, his temple, when Jesus rose again and sent his spirit to dwell within his people, his temple. That was God's plan. That is God's reversal. The same Lord God who vigorously defends us now because we are his temple. Be at rest 
in this crazy, chaotic world, in the Lord our Redeemer because of his reversal, the covenant fulfilled at the cross and the empty tomb, just as the Lord has purpose against Babylon, verse 45 of our passage. He has purpose for us and in our favor. Perhaps the best-known verse out of all of Jeremiah, often ripped out of context, but we've gone through this. Jeremiah 29.11 fits here. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Beware, O nations out there, how you treat the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and any one of his people. Be encouraged, O church, in here. No matter how evil the treatment you receive from any nation or any source, your God is watching, your God will redeem you, while he also brings an end to all evil. Let's pray.